Hi, karaoke pals and podcast listeners. Before we get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion for anyone with the ability to become pregnant. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision could also lead to the loss of other rights, contraception, marriage equality, and a whole host of other things we believe a free and just society needs to be considered and to remain a free and just society. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to choice.crd.co. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. One thing I always like to ask people who've been doing karaoke since the 90s is, were you ever in a place where they actually called it the menu like they call it in duets? Have you ever heard the karaoke book called The Menu? That does not ring a bell, but I will say my karaoke experience when I was in Pennsylvania in those days involved a lot of drinking, some of it heavy. I'm not proud of that. I'm not bragging about that, but it is a fact. So it's entirely possible that that did happen and the brain cells where that was stored are no longer in uh, in service. Welcome back to The Greatest Song Ever Sung Poorly. It's the podcast that takes karaoke exactly as seriously as it should be taken. I'm your down-to-business host, Adam Wainwright. And I'm going to help him defeat the Huns. I'm Ed Kennard. Yes, help me defeat the Huns. But I, I get the Mulan reference there, Ed. I was trying. Now, see, now you've already sidetracked me. You told me before we got on that we need, we want to keep it tight today. We don't want to stray too much off subject. Let's do a really tight main segment. And then I throw it out there to get down to business and you make a Mulan reference. What am I supposed to do with that, Ed? I think you should take that as your cue to move on to what you really want to say, Adam. What I really want to say is that everybody should go to sunquarterly.com and leave us questions because I really just want to answer people's questions about karaoke. And we want to answer the questions that we hear in your voice. We love the DMs. We love the emails. We'll work those in. But we want to hear you specifically on our podcast. We do love the DMs, though, like wink, wink. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Slide on in, baby. The only DMs I get nowadays are Courtney sending me cat videos, and I'm not not complaining about that either. Who would complain about that? Do you know what you also tend to never complain about? There's a lot of things I don't complain about. I'm a pretty easygoing guy, Ed. Who are? It's usually the stinger that I throw at you for our trivia segment. Oh, yeah. I don't get, do, you, do you have a new one? I do. So today we're talking to Brad Williams, the creator of Once Upon a Wasteland a romance set in the Fallout 76 universe, which is really exciting because I, I love the Fallout games. They're really the only video games I play. I know you like them as well, correct? I do. I'm actually replaying Fallout 4. We'll talk about that later. So that means you're getting used to the music of Fallout again, right? It's one of the best parts about Fallout, Ed. Then you are going to love today's karaoke trivia bullpen. Here's what you'll get. Five trivia questions based on the episode's topic with varying degrees of difficulty. Each question is worth one point, so the top score for any round is five points. If you get stuck, you can ask for one hint per game. Even if you get all of the questions wrong, you can still win by answering the impossible question. Get that one right, 
and you get all five points. But remember, even if you save your hint, there are no hints for the impossible bonus. And am I going to get the impossible bonus right today? God, no. Okay, good. That's. I asked people who I thought could possibly get it in advance, and they didn't. So I feel like we're genuinely impossible today. But again, we're talking to Brad Williams. This is a fictional universe-themed episode. So, of course, our trivia segment today is based on the music that is in the Fallout games. And, of course, with music in the Fallout games, I can only think of one group, and that's the Ink Spots. say we're often off key i think our listeners are often off key i know some of them aren't you don't you don't you know who you are we love you we kind of hate you but we love you we love everyone equally adam so did that put you in that wasteland spirit though hearing the ink spots sort of and i got my i got my pit boy tuned in to wasteland radio and i'm ready to go we'll dive right in with question one obviously one group is indelibly linked to the fallout franchise more than any other the ink spots they're the precursors to so much music that you love. You can hear their influence in everything from classic Motown to boys to men. They're known for quite a few things, like the recurring opening guitar motif that brands the song as an ink spot song, and the top and bottom format, with lead singer Bill Kenny providing a high tenor melody, the top, and bass singer Orville Jones providing a deep talk-sing counterpoint at the bridge, the bottom. The majority of their songs in Fallout games follow the top and bottom format, but there is one notable exception. And you might get this one right, or you might get this one wrong. What song in these games is missing Jones's sonorous bass? This is multiple choice. A, into each life some rain must fall. B, I don't want to set the world on fire. C, maybe. And D, we'll meet again. I'm going to say it's C, Ed. Good job, man. Good job. I, I figured those hints of you might get it right or might get it wrong might work it in a little bit there. But yeah, you got one point. Great job. I looked at it as like I had a 25% chance to get it right. And my guessing skills were on point today. We'll see if your guessing skills are on point for the second one. Question two. There are a lot of songs in the Fallout games by Bob Crosby and the Bobcats. Happy Times, Dear Hearts and Gentle People, and Way Back Home. But his more famous brother's work appears in Fallout New Vegas where his version of Something's Gotta Give airs on the in-game radio. Who is this singer? You know what pops into my head, Ed? I'm just going to share this right now. 
for some reason here at Cosby. So the only thing that popped into my head was Bill Cosby. And I know I'm I'm guessing that's that's probably not it. So we're gonna we're gonna move on. I'm gonna go with David Crosby, maybe. Adam, it's Bing Crosby, man. I don't know. I was thinking Crosby stills and Nash. That's the first thing that popped into my head. I thought that was gonna be a slam dunk, but maybe, maybe, maybe question three will 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 get you back in. In Fallout 76, there's a performance of Louis Armstrong's Old Man Mose by Eddie Duchin with vocals by Patricia Norman. A segment of the song sounded like a swear word, even though the lyrics list something else. From a blog post at Weird Universe, quote, The scandalous lyrics caused the record to zoom to number two on the Billboard charts, resulting in sales of 170,000 copies when sales of 20,000 were considered a blockbuster. The song was banned after its release in Great Britain. The notorious number can be heard on a British novelty CD, Beat the Band to the Bar. What's the swear word folks swear they heard? What's the name of the song again, Ed? Old Man Mose. That doesn't count as a hint. Uh, the fuck? That's right. I will play a snippet now. Mose is dead. Wait, Billy. Oh, fuck it. Wait, Billy. Fuck, fuck, fuck it. Wait, Billy. He kicked the bucket and no. I mean, clearly the lyrics are supposed to be bucket, but what do you think? Well, no, I think they said fuck it. I think they did it on purpose. They're trying to sell some records, Ed. Hell yeah. They did it too. They, they got it. it. They said fuck it. So two points, man. Question four. Play the guitar. Play it again, my Johnny. If there's one song that polarizes fans of Fallout New Vegas, it's Johnny Guitar, which seemed to play at a higher rate than other songs on the radio stations and game. The artist who sang it is probably best known for a cover of the Little Willie John song, Fever. But she actually wrote Johnny Guitar herself. Who is the artist? She wrote Johnny Guitar. I know uh, I'm, I'm going to place it together. Shit, why the fuck can't I think of her name? I, I have the songs playing in my head, Ed. You give me fever with kisses. Fever, fever when, when he holds me, holds me tight. Fever in the morning. Fever all through the night. Uh, is it Peggy Lee? It is Peggy Lee. Good job. Okay, man. great. So that's three points. Question five. Fallout games from Fallout 3 on have always featured in-game radio stations with memorable NPC characters as hosts, including Three Dog, Travis, and a raider robot named Rosie. However, the voice of Mr. New Vegas in Fallout New Vegas is a musician and entertainer in his own right who in real life, is known as Mr. Las Vegas. His best-known song is probably Dankeschön, but he's also well-known for a lot of cameo roles in movies, including Vegas Vacation, Smoking Aces, The Hangover, and Sharknado The Fourth Awakens? That's the best Sharknado. Few entertainers are as connected to Vegas as he is. Name him. Wayne Newton. Correct. Four points. Four out of five, man. Great job. Or you can get all five points if you get the impossible bonus right. I would just be showing off, I feel like. I feel like if I get the impossible bonus, I'm be showing off. So if you're listening to this, I'm purposely giving a wrong answer, and I'm going to clearly know this one. This impossible bonus is oddly personal. Technically speaking, Wayne Newton is the first celebrity I ever met. I grew up in the Poconos, and relatives worked at Tamamint Resort, which he owned from 1982 to 1987. The resort itself is no longer there, and much of the land has been converted to residential homes. But 
Prior to that, and prior to Newton owning it, the resort was called a, quote, progressive version of the Catskills when it was a popular resort for Jewish singles and hosted performances and shows from folks such as Danny Kay, Carol Burnett, Neil Simon, Frankie Valli, Gladys Knight, B. Arthur, and many others. The golf course was designed by Robert Trent Jones and, at one point, was considered one of the top 200 golf courses in the country. But way before all that, it opened in 1921 under the name Camp Tamament and was called, quote, the first attempt of socialists and working people to make for themselves a place for rest, recreation, and vacationing, and was used to fill the coffers of both the place itself and the organization who founded it. What early 20th century New York socialist school and organization opened the resort Wayne Newton would later own and the place where I had my very first job, where I met some of my dearest lifelong friends, and where I technically sang karaoke for the very first time. The New York Society for Mechanical Engineers. We were looking for the Rand School of Social Science. I was so close. You were so close. I mean, you had the word school in there. I did. I did. Yeah. I feel like that's something, right? Like it could have been, it could have been tons of organizations. And can I just say that I feel like that trivia was both entertaining and informative and you walked the very fine line. So thank you for that. Thank you for challenging me. Thank you for rising to the challenge, man. Four out of five. Great job. Thank you. You know what? Four out of five ain't bad. You know what else ain't bad? I feel like karaoke representations in alternative media isn't, isn't bad. What do you mean by that? If you see a karaoke scene that's outside of our world to a certain extent, you know, I think the, one of the examples that you listed in the pre-show notes are going to be like Star Trek, which I've never seen Star Trek. I, I've never been a Trekkie. I've never really got into that, that fandom. But like, tell me about this, Ed, because I feel like it's a great example. Star Trek is outside of our realm, but there's some karaoke in there. Well, I don't know if there is karaoke in there. I kind of want to speculate on it because I know that in The Next Generation, there were times where Lieutenant Will Riker would play saxophone in a seedy jazz club using the holodeck. And I just want to imagine a world where I can go into a holodeck, have an entire karaoke bar built around me, and because it's computer programmed, Everyone has to clap and tell me I did a good job. Would you want that though? Would you want people to clap and tell you did a good job? Actually, yeah, I probably would. Everybody likes to have their ego stroked every now and then. It's not something I always get. So what about you? What fictional universe karaoke would you like to see? I think you're on the right track there. Doing karaoke in the Mos Eisley Cantina would be kick-ass. It would be just dangerous enough. You would know what you're getting into. It's a karaoke spot you go to where you know someone's getting stabbed that day. They're getting shot. Somebody's, there's going to be some kind of fight. It's appropriate amount of danger. So it's like you're like generating a thrill out of the danger of the situation with singing karaoke. What language would that be? Who knows? That's exactly what it would sound like in the Mos Eisley Cantina. I have one very important question that we're going to settle. Is there been any kind of representations of karaoke that you have seen that you're, we're not fantasizing about that you really think it kind of captured the spirit or not? Well, if you think back to the episode that we did with Douglas Wolk talking about his book, he shared us a lot of Marvel Comics panels that I think actually did in pen and ink really capture a karaoke environment. So we at least know that karaoke does exist in the Marvel Universe and, of course, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm going to make a confession right here over the air to the millions of listeners that are tuning in live. I haven't seen Shang-Chi yet. So I'm going to jump right to it, Ed. We, we've talked about Mos Eisley. We've talked about Star Trek. We've imagined some things. We've seen some good representation in Marvel. But the big question everybody wants to know is, 
Is Rock Band karaoke? Is Rock Band fictional? Is it a fictional universe? Yes. You have you have fictional fans that are cheering you on. That is a fictional universe. I get what you're saying, but you're you're playing a virtual singer on a virtual stage. You know what? I'm gonna say I do think that Rock Band is karaoke. It's frustrating karaoke for me because that's the one that has the pitch meters, right? Where it goes up and down. And yeah, yeah, it has the. Yeah, I've never actually hit those. I think that there's a more challenging question that's at the heart of this that I just missed initially that I think I can put it in a way that is really going to resonate with you. So the nature of rock band is that it's social, right? And that's an important part of karaoke. It needs to be social. So there's other people that are there. They're watching you sing. There, there's normally more than one person involved with rock band, right? Can you agree to that, Ed? Yeah, I can agree to that. I've never played it with less than two people. Do you know what there's not always more than one person than just you involved in that we were very into for a little while? Adam, are you talking about my favorite karaoke video game of all time, Def Jam Rapstar? I am. I was going to ask a Rapstar, is that karaoke? Yeah, it is. Hell yeah. Why is it karaoke? There's no social aspect to it. There is, though, because do you recall that at one point you were number one in the country on Xbox on Rapper's Delight and I was number one in the country on PlayStation? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, which is wild, too. Like, I look back at that and I'm like, there were a lot of people that were playing that game. The last time that I looked before those servers shut down, I think I was still at like 34 on PlayStation for Rapper's Delight. I'm sure the people that were above us were just hammering it again and again and again so they could keep scoring higher. I loved that game so much. That's the that's the first game I ever bought online expansion packs for because Rapper's Delight didn't come with the base game. Paid in full didn't come with the base game. I'm like, no, no, I'm just gonna buy all of this. And what the wild thing was, is we were so good at Rapper Delight, but there were so many songs. So I, I can speak for myself. I was so bad at it in that game. I was just terrible at it. Honestly, the only reason I can do Twista's slow jams at karaoke is because of how many times I did it on Def Jam Rap Star. That is my secret. That's fair. I, I'm going to argue I don't think it's karaoke, though. They had the social aspect. It didn't have the social aspect. It did have both on the online version. And do you remember when we would play battles back and forth and they had that competition mode? that you could play. And we did that a couple times. That's a versus mode very specifically. So, okay, you know what you say there, if you're playing the versus mode, maybe there's a social aspect to it. But I don't, I, I think for me, it would be the equivalent of like, if you counted singing in the shower as karaoke. Well, sometimes that has an audience. Well, sometimes it does. Yeah. High fives. You just changed the mood in here real quick. And it was beautiful. I love it. So let's simplify things. Okay, I'll give it to you. Rap star, karaoke, singing video games, karaoke. Great. Love it. We settled it once and for all. Don't DM us. I mean, do whatever you're going to do. I want you to engage in social media with us. But don't question us on this because it's settled. And I want to know what you think that karaoke looks like in your favorite fictional universe. I have some video games that I played karaoke, and it's interesting seeing how it's represented in video games. Like there's a, a Yakuza Zero was what I was playing, which I felt like, uh, listen, I put about 35 hours in the Yakuza 0, felt like I was getting nowhere. It was fun. It's a ton of fun to play, but man, I felt like I was getting nowhere. I'm like, I'm going to put 200 hours into this game and not beat it at this point, so I need to stop. But they have a karaoke minigame in there, and it was depressing, and, but it was fun, and it sounds, it was, that's, that was close to karaoke. Yeah, I've been meaning to check that out because I, I, I have another friend named Brad used to tell me about that game. I should check that out. But the question I want to ask the listeners is, before we roll into our amazing interview with Brad Williams of Once Upon a Wasteland, I want you to think about your favorite fictional universe. 
be it DC Comics, be it Star Wars, be it anything. Fallout, be it Fallout, Doctor Who. Tell us what you think the karaoke looks like in that world. We really want to know. We'll read your answers on the air. Oh, I want to know what Skyrim looks like too, specifically. I'm just going to drill down on video games. Madden, I need somebody to answer me what karaoke would look like if it was a mini game in the Madden football series, what that karaoke would look like. Most creative answer wins a t-shirt. Sure. A t-shirt. Yeah. 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 They win a t-shirt. Tell me what karaoke looks like in Madden or your favorite fictional universe. Most creative answer will get a t-shirt of their choosing. So now that we've just randomly done a contest live recorded on the air, what do you say that we cue the fucking guitar and get to this interview with Brad Williams? I say it's well past due. Let's go. And now it's time for a promo. Hey, all you wannabe raiders out there. It's your bestest girl, Rose, coming at you from top of the world. Now it's time for your local traffic and weather. Welp, looks like almost everyone's still dead. So traffic is at a standstill. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor, because they're totally not bribing me with massive amounts of chems or anything. Seems as the stuffed shirts are back at the White Springs playing games with that total loser modus. But hey, if that's your thing, whatever. So if all you squares wanted to hear more, totally, sort of, but maybe not boring stories about rebuilding Appalachia and being all goody two-shoes, definitely not Raiders, check out this thing they call a podcast, The Modus Files, whatever that's supposed to be, on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever else you listen to those things. Double ug, they're not paying me enough for this. Till later, this is Rose. Raiders rule! You never know who might be a secret karaoke lover. We've talked to musicians, authors, comedians, and of course, other podcasters. But if you connect with people, you may be surprised at how many people really and truly love karaoke, even if it doesn't connect with what they're known for. Today's guest, as we said earlier, is the mind behind Once Upon a Wasteland, a queer love story set in the world of Fallout 76, Bethesda's online multiplayer RPG. But he's also a talented singer both in and out of karaoke spaces as well. Braddy Williams, welcome to The Greatest Song Ever Sung Poorly. Thank you very much for having me. It's very exciting to be here. I have to say, as somebody who listens to your show, it's weird to hear you just talk as yourself and not as a character. Yeah, and, and I actually did make it a point in the show. I, I, I only appear in it twice, in the epilogue, in the final episode, and also in the prologue. That was a point that I tried to make, so hopefully it's not too jarring. <laughs> as somebody who's just started to dive in and listen to the prologue, it's not jarring me off. We like to ask people about the karaoke origin story. How did you get started? How did you wander into the world of karaoke? So I, I was thinking about this earlier today, and I don't remember the specifics of how we started to go to karaoke bars, but it was my friend Frank and I that started going and Frank doesn't sing, but like so many other things in my life, it mostly came about trying to meet girls. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible thing to say, but that really was it. And I, and I, I discovered, I, I hadn't really done much singing up to that point. I'd done acting, but not really any singing. And I found that I had 
at least some level of, I guess, raw ability to, to sing into a microphone, and not have it sound terrible. Now, if I'm being completely honest, this is also something that I was thinking about earlier today. I think it had less to do with raw singing talent or the ability to really knock them dead with my voice than it was. I used to be a reasonably attractive person when I was younger and I was a good enough singer that I wouldn't get booed off the stage. There are levels to these things. So you could have a really beautiful man who is a horrendous singer who would be popular. And you can also have somebody that looks like a super mutant from fallout, but has the voice okay. of an angel. They will also be popular. But I think I, I hit the right levels of those two things that I, I was welcome in the various karaoke bars in Northeastern Pennsylvania, where I was spending my time at that point. You've been singing for a good long time now in karaoke spaces. Mm -hmm. How have you seen karaoke change during your time with it? You know, it, it might be a factor of where I have been singing karaoke, but the community and that aspect of it has been something that has remained pretty consistent. The technology has changed, but the dynamics between people and the camaraderie that you see in a karaoke bar and those kinds of things have remained constant. Really that part of it, you know, I joke about, yeah, I did it to me girls, but really it was the community and the camaraderie that kept me coming back. Yeah. That happens to the best of us. So I think it's, <laughs> I don't know if, I think it's a karaoke thing. It could be a Pennsylvania thing too, I guess. Cause I think Ed and I can relate on a yeah. couple of different levels there. <laughs> Something that I definitely relate to with you is that you're someone who really loves show tunes. I also love show tunes. What's your advice for someone who loves them and wants to do them at a karaoke night? Well, that's a good question. Cause it's funny. I, I do love show tunes. I've done several musicals, had a lot of fun in them. A Little Shop of Horrors is probably the favorite musical that I actually performed in. It's just, it's a great experience to be up on stage and doing that. Were you Audrey too, or were you Seymour? <laughs> I was Seymour. Okay. It, yeah. It was a lot of fun. It's a, it's a great show and I'd love to do it again, but I'd probably have to be mushing it. Cause I don't, I think I'm aged out of Seymour at this point. <laughs> you know, part of it, like, like anything show tunes are one of those things where I think you can do show tunes. You can do Sinatra. There's certain things that you can do in just about any karaoke bar, no matter what the clientele may be. I think those are such karaoke staples that you can do those. And I guess like any other karaoke track, it's about knowing your voice, knowing what you can do. And it's not just about your voice. It's about performance and how you can relate to the crowd and all those kinds of things. You, you find out what you do best and what you enjoy doing the most. Cause it's, you know, nobody's paying anybody to go up there and do karaoke. Just get up there, have fun, connect, do all those things and everything's going to work out. So I think my advice for somebody who loves show tunes and wants to do them would be very similar to the advice that I'd give somebody to who wants to sing Garth Brooks or Allison Chains, right? If that's what you want to do, get up there and, and, and do the, the absolute best job that you can. One of the things that when I was in Europe a couple of weeks ago that I sadly was not able to do, and I mentioned to Ed that I had to miss it, was karaoke in Austria. And one of the people that, that did go told me there was a guy who did, it was a song from the, I think it was the Will Ferrell Eurovision movie and said that it was this guy was awesome. He was dancing. He was, he was a good singer and did all that. And the crowd was hooting and hollering and just and cheering him on. It was great. That's the kind of thing that you kind of live for when you do this kind of thing. Not necessarily, you know, people carrying you around or getting in a conga line, but people connecting with you in the way that you want to connect with them. That's awesome. That's one of the best things about karaoke is just how you connect. And I'm connecting something with what you just said to something that I've been meaning to ask you. You once worked as a bouncer in a strip club and you mm -hmm. told us you sang a specific Sinatra song at the end of the night when they had karaoke. What was it and why did you pick that? 
I did work as a bouncer at a strip club. My friend Frank was dating a girl who worked at that strip club and, and we used to hang out. There were a lot of really good people. So I was, I guess, of appropriate build and demeanor to be a bouncer. So I did that. I worked bachelor parties. I worked at the club. It was a lot of fun. The three regular DJs were Gary, Joe, and Fritz. None of them were available the one night. So another guy, Scott, filled in. Now, Scott was a regular karaoke DJ. And I knew him from the various karaoke clubs. So I was joking with him that night, a night that I was working. I said, hey, you know, at the end of the night, I should sing New York, New York. And he's like, oh, yeah, you should do that. And I was like, well, I was kidding. There wasn't really a specific reason that I picked New York, New York, other than I was singing a lot of Sinatra at the time. So I thought that it was appropriate. And it was fun. I, I can say that I, I sang karaoke at a strip club and people said they thought it was a recording. When I sang Sinatra, I don't think I sounded like Sinatra. I think I sounded good. But I didn't sound like Sinatra. I think they were just, you wouldn't expect someone to be singing karaoke at the end of the night at 2 a.m. in a Pennsylvania strip club. So <laughs> it was probably more that. In our last episode, we actually talked about singing karaoke in a Pennsylvania strip club. <laughs> I also like finding that there's other people that are part of the We Sang Karaoke in a Strip Club community. Like, I feel like we're small but mighty. Aside from the strip club, you've done karaoke in all type of venues. Which ones do you prefer? And what would surprise people about specific venues and scenes? So I think the most fun that I had, there's a, a club up in Pennsylvania called the Woodlands. It's kind of a standard dance club and they have a couple of different areas. They have a, a downstairs part called 30 something that was a more mellow crowd and it wasn't the EDM and that kind of stuff they had upstairs and they would have karaoke there. I think the most fun that I had at karaoke nights was often there because it was usually a big crowd. It was a more upscale crowd. And they tended to really get into it. And you got a lot of really good singers there too, which helped. It's one of those things like, you know, I play baseball all through college and you play to the level of your competition. And I never considered myself to be in competition with the other singers, but having people that were good around you makes you want to up your game and do well. So that, I think that was the most fun, but I mean, in Pennsylvania, there's, there's no shortage of dive bars <laughs> and I, I certainly did karaoke there. In fact, here's a, here's a good anecdote. It's, it's a place that I only went once and I went with my friend, John, uh, who's the best man at my wedding. He has a velvet voice. He has a beautiful singing voice. We went there one night. We had heard that they had karaoke and we just went there to, to check it out. And John sang a country song of some sort. I don't remember what song it was, but it was like a ballad. It was just, you know, a really lovely ballad. After he sang it, he came up to me and he said, we need to go. I said, we, we, we need to go. Why? He said, well, some of the girls started looking at me and their boyfriends also started looking at me, but in a completely different way. So, so I think we should get out of here. And, and, and we did. So yeah, John thought that we were going to get our butts kicked at a dive bar because he was too good of a singer, which I could see that happening. Listen, that is a legitimate concern in some of the smaller Pennsylvania rural bars. Yes. I know I have been almost in that exact situation because one of my magic tricks of karaoke is Johnny Cash. So I make friends through Johnny Cash and get dirty looks from jealous boyfriends with Johnny Cash too. You can definitely do Jackson with the wrong partner by accident and find some oh trouble God. by the end of the night. Listen, I'm going to, I'm just going to say it right now. If you're listening to this and you are a boyfriend or fiance or husband of some, somebody who wants to sing Jackson, you won't do it with her. So if somebody like me comes up <laughs> and sings Jackson with her, that's your own damn fault. That ain't me. Don't be mad at me. Like pull that mirror out in the, in the bathroom, look yourself in the eye. Cause that's all you buddy. Get up there, sing Jackson. It doesn't matter if you sing it well. She wants to sing Jackson, you sing Jackson. That's how you keep her happy. 
if you're not going to sing Jackson, sing Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror, because that's who you should be looking at. Oh, damn. And don't ask any of us to sing picture. Oh, it's true. I, I did sing Leather and Lace with somebody. It's always nice when somebody comes up to you and wants to sing with you. And she was by herself, so there wasn't a jealous boyfriend kind of thing going on. So that was nice. But it, it's very gratifying. That's one of the most gratifying things, I think, that can happen at karaoke, especially if you're in a place that you're not a regular at, is somebody coming up to you and saying, hey, I'd like to do a duet with you. I think that's that's a really nice feeling. It, it gives you the warm and fuzzies. Can I really stress something you said that I don't think we've ever really covered on this podcast before that really resonated with me that I think is very true is that we talk a little bit about just having fun at karaoke night and express yourself getting up there and doing it. But you made the point that if everybody else in that bar or place you're doing karaoke is good, you raise your game. You feel like you need to raise your game. You need to match the attitude. You have to bring your absolute best to the table because that's what's already been established. And I've done this before and I don't think I've ever articulated it. So I just wanted to thank you, Brad, for bringing that into our little mini cultural zeitgeist that we're building right here. <laughs> because I think that's absolutely true. Ed, do you agree with that? That like you raise your karaoke game when the, the night depends on it? I always bring my A game every place I go, except that my A game is like the minor league, possibly the little league in some cases, but I, I'm, I'm doing my best, man. Sometimes you need a tee to hit a home run at. It's okay. Right. <laughs> well, but here, here's something that I've noticed, and I wonder if this is something that you guys have seen. When DJs get to know you, I think that they will massage their order of singers to, I'm not sure if it's necessarily a, an ebb and flow or, or to, to have the right kind of rhythm in singers. But one thing I noticed was I would always get slotted. I would always have to follow somebody who was a known ass kicker in the karaoke space. And man, that used to frost me, man. So the, the two examples that I have of that, I, I mentioned that I sing Sinatra. There was a guy up in Pennsylvania, an older guy who, his name is Joe Pisano, who sounded like Sinatra. I mean, honest, honest to goodness, sounded like Sinatra. And you have me who sings Sinatra, but I didn't, I didn't have that Sinatra voice. I think I have a good voice, but I don't have that voice. Every single time it felt like he would sing, I'd be like, well, I better go to the bathroom now because I'm going to be coming up next. And more often than not, I was right. There was another guy and, and he didn't do karaoke much. His name was Ronnie Williams. And I think he's still a pro up in Pennsylvania. He was in a band up there, great band, Foxy Brown. When he would show up and he has a fabulous voice. I mean, like I said, he's, you know, he sings like in a band. He had kind of a John Bon Jovi kind of a voice. And I would always follow him. And I was like, mm. guys, come on. Like, I I'm just, I'm just this dude. <laughs> like, please, please stop doing this to me. It happened too often for it to be a coincidence. So I didn't know if it was intentional or just bad luck. Is that something that, that you guys have noticed? In the bars that I go to most frequently, not really, mainly because they run like a kind of strict rotation. So it doesn't matter. By and large, they use me as the guinea pig because I'm usually there ready and waiting and they know what I sound like so they can adjust knobs and stuff. But I know then that like, all right, after the host sings, it's going to be me probably, which is actually right now in the same case because it's, it's now a multi-generational karaoke family at my main regular bar. And the guy who used to run it, his daughter is running it now. She's like 20, 21. I don't know. I have never heard anyone sing Patsy Cline better than this girl ever. You know, th th something like that happened to me on the other side. There was a bar that I went to in, in Pittston, which is in that general Wilkes Ferry Scranton area. And I, at that point, I was singing Cool Change by Little River Band quite a bit. And the one waitress that was there, she always said she really liked it. 
So I had been there for a while. I'd established a relationship with the people that work there, the DJ, the bartender, the, the waitresses, et cetera. So I said, write a song down for me to sing and I'll sing it, but just have it be something other than cool change. Cause I always do cool change. So she said, okay. She takes the book. She looks, she looks, she looks, she writes it down. She puts it up. Song comes up. It's cool change. Like, like, I guess she liked it, but still. Karaoke is kind of how you got your way into singing, but you've also done a good bit of choral music. How did you get into that? And are there different techniques you use at karaoke versus in a choral setting? Yeah, it, it was kind of a progression, I guess. The first place where I really sang at all was karaoke. Not long after that, I started to get into doing musicals. So it, it went from karaoke to a more formal kind of performance in doing musicals. And I, I skipped over being in the chorus. I went right into doing lead roles or larger supporting roles. I think it's, and it's not me saying, oh, well, I'm such a good singer. I'm too good for the chorus. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is I don't think I necessarily have the kind of voice that fits being in the chorus. Maybe it doesn't blend all that well. I think that's, that was more what it was. So after that, I got involved with doing some singing at church. Now I am not a religious person. In fact, the music minister at the church where I, where I sing now, she said, I'm, I'm the token atheist. Like she goes to these conferences with other choir directors and music ministers from throughout the diocese and other dioceses. And they're like, oh, well, I have two LGBTQ people in my chorus. And she's like, ha I have an atheist in mine. And she always wins. But I, I, pl I play guitar mostly just because I, I like to be difficult. And these are traditional, not traditional. I mean, they're traditional and traditional-ish church songs. And I write my own guitar arrangements and play my Fender Jaguar through the sound system over top of it. I like to be difficult, but I do sing still sometimes, but that's kind of how the progression there went. That's really cool. Your story resonates with me on a number of levels because I went from my karaoke history with Ed, but I have no formal training in singing, but I got it really into acting and was having some success as an actor. And I thought, well, the next transition is, you know, I've sung karaoke. I can't read music. I have no understanding of it. So I, anything I do, I can do like do by ear, but I'm like, shit, I'm going to start auditioning for some musicals. I didn't get cast in the first one. I had a callback for Judas and Godspell, but I didn't get cast. And then I got cast as Snoopy and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. So I went from never doing a musical to singing Supper Time, which if you're familiar with mm -hmm. You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown at all, it was like good fucking luck. That was <laughs> that, that that entire run up to that last note is especially since they had me like on my hands and knees on top of a doghouse trying to like <laughs> get enough breath to do that final note. Which leads me to ask, was Seymour your first lead role that you just kind of jumped into or was it something different? Because I'm just curious. Oh, yeah, that was the first lead role I did. I did a couple of different roles in Three Penny Opera, which was the first show that I did. I kind of got roped into that by my friend, John, that I mentioned. He was in it. He played the narrator in that. And he was like, hey, they need, they need guys. They need a couple of people to, to play a couple of roles. And I came in and sang for the director and the, and the music director and Later on in the show, hopefully the person that played Matt Keith isn't listening to this. He, the director said, man, I really wish you would have auditioned earlier. I would have cast you as Matt Keith, but it was two smaller roles. It was nice. It was a little, a little bit of acting. It was a nice way to get my feet wet, but yeah, my first lead role was Seymour. That's a, that's a big way to step into it. And speaking of big things and stepping into it, let's talk about your podcast a little bit. Once upon a wasteland. 
is a queer love story set in the Fallout video game series universe. I'm not a diehard Fallout fan, but I played through most of the Fallout since three. I haven't dove into 76 too much, but I know it's on Game Pass now, so I might dive into 76 a little bit more. When did you start as a Fallout fan in general? And why did you embrace that setting for your audio drama? Well, I started playing Fallout with Fallout 4 when that was originally released for PlayStation 4. I played it, loved it, played through it, I think, five times to, to do the different faction combinations. And I love the universe. And I've one of the things that I talk about when I discuss why Fallout is Bethesda has done a really good job of creating a universe that lends itself to a number of different kinds of stories to be told. So I think that's reflected in some of the creative stuff that happens around Fallout. There are some really good stories that have been told and are being told right now. And really that comes down to the world that Bethesda has created. It's not locked down and so strict that it's hard to tell a story in it. It's like Star Trek or Star Wars in that the people that created those universes have created a very broad and a very rich canvas. And I hope that Bethesda is doing the same thing with Starfield. In fact, I'm, I'm involved in a project for Starfield where I'm going to be writing an episode of an anthology series that's coming out. I think I'm down for episode five or episode eight. I don't remember now, but we're in the process of, of getting all those things written. So we have high hopes that it's going to be the same kind of a universe. And I think everything that we've seen so far supports that. But in terms of how I made the transition into creating a story based on it, I guess you would say a wannabe screenwriter. I had training in college for screenwriting as well as voiceover, narration, acting, all that kind of thing. And I, after several frustrations and, and, and failures in that area, I decided to get a day job and just kind of shelved that creative part of my life and just sort of stopped doing it. Early last year, there was a Reddit post from a guy named Lawrence who does a podcast called The Modus Files which is another story podcast based on Fallout 76. And he said, hey, I need people to do voices for this audio drama podcast. So I threw my hat in the ring, auditioned for the role of Modus. Modus, if you're not familiar with the game, is an AI that runs the Enclave, which is kind of a, an offshoot of the U.S. government that's intended to sort of restore their own form of order in the wasteland following the nuclear apocalypse. Lawrence's story follows the new enclave in the Fallout 76 universe. And I have to put a plug in for it, not because I'm in it, but it's a really great story. It's fantastic. It's been fabulously successful. It's a great story. Well told. So if you're, if you're a Fallout fan, I think you, you, you owe it to yourself to check it out. I, I highly recommend it. Even the, even the episodes that I'm not in, which there aren't many, cause I think I do six roles in it now, but <laughs> things, things grew from there. So what happened was it started discussions in the discord. It kind of awakened the idea of telling a story and it sort of grew out of my OC in fallout 76, where I started to create little nuggets of a backstory for that character. Lawrence was very encouraging. Lawrence is a, is a fantastic guy. Not only is he a great creator, he's extremely encouraging to other creators. So he gave me some really great feedback. He's like, Hey, you know, this is, this is actually pretty interesting. You should flesh it out. And I would flesh it out and he said, yeah, you should write a little story based on that. And I, and I did that. And it finally got to the point where he said, you know, you should do your own audio drama podcast about this. And I thought, well, I could do that. I mean, I know how to write a script. That's not something I don't know how to do. Uh, it's been 25 years, but I think I remember how, how the mechanics of that work. He provided fantastic feedback, a lot of back and forth, and I would show him what I had and he would make suggestions. And 
we would kind of go back and forth there. And finally it got to the point where I was able to get a couple of scripts at the can. I think I had two scripts done, not counting the prologue. It was the prologue came later. Episodes one and two were written, got to the point of casting, had some incredible luck with casting and it just kind of took off from there. The reason that I found your podcast and fell in love with it is I'm a little bit more of a diehard Fallout fan than Adam. Admittedly, because when I was looking for video game recommendations, I was like, what's a game that's like Skyrim? And people told me, well, you know, Dragon Age, there's this. I was like, no, 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 no. What's a game where the buttons are in the same place as Skyrim? <laughs> and a, a friend's like, oh, no, this, this game's perfect for you. Same buttons, different setting, plus it has music by the Ink Spots and Bing Crosby. And that's what got me into it. And so from like three on, like I've been there. And 76 was my first online game and technically the first time I've ever done online karaoke without realizing that if you have area audio on, other people can hear what you're doing. And I'm just tooling around Morgantown, singing along to 60 Minute Man or, <laughs> you know, any whatever song it was playing at the time. And someone's like, man, I, I guess you don't play like online a lot, like, but you know, people can hear you. And I'm like, uh, oh, 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 okay. Okay. But like, I have played 76. I, I dropped out before that Brotherhood of Steel expansion that kind of plays into your entire show. And I didn't realize some of the characters in your show also appear in the game. Mm -hmm. What challenges did you or the voice actor Vitriol plays who does Odessa Valdez face when fleshing out that character of scribe Odessa Valdez, knowing that she was an extant part of that game in that expansion? Well, beyond that, that character is absolutely beloved among the Fallout community. And that's actually a big part of the reason why this story became what it was. If you play the game, and Ed, obviously you're, you're familiar with this, as a part of that Brotherhood of Steel expansion, you interact with Scribe Odessa Valdez quite a bit. You go on some missions with her, you take care of stuff, you can talk to her, you can even flirt with her. There are two instances that you flirt with her. One, she shuts you down cold, like, no, I don't think we should have a relationship like that. And then another one, she's weirdly receptive, but you cannot romance her. There is no romance option for this character in the game. And people were lamenting that on Reddit and in other places because they thought, you know, they, they love the character. The character physically is designed very attractively within the game. Michelle C. Bonilla does the voice. She does a really fabulous job with the voice. And I guess the character really struck a chord with people. Despite that though, largely within the game, she's kind of a cipher. We know a little bit about her. We learn some things by reading things on terminals and the interactions that you have with her. Like you pick up the fact that her parents were founding members of the Brotherhood of Steel in California, that she with Paladin Romani, who's another character that's in the game, as well as in the show, marched to West Virginia from California. You learn about a mentorship relationship that she had with two different people in the Brotherhood of Steel. So you find out things like that, but there's not a lot of very detailed backstory and you don't get a huge insight into her personality. That helps. So it really allowed me a lot of freedom to write her the way that I wanted to write her. And, and it allowed me to, to take the character where the story took the character rather than feeling like I needed to keep her in a particular lane. I should mention Vitriol. She was mindful of the performance of Michelle Sipania and that aspect of it. But one of the things that I really admire about her approach is she was mindful of it, but she still very much made the character her own to the point that I've, I've had people say to me, you know, I, 
I, I go in and play 76 now and I go and talk to Valdez and it doesn't sound right because it's not vitriol doing the voice. It's the actual voice actress that's doing it. So I guess we've struck a chord similarly to how the people that designed the character in the game struck a chord. It's amazing that you had the artistic freedom and, it, and honestly, like I said, I, I've started diving in a little bit. I'm really looking forward to listening to the rest of it because it, it's challenging. It's complicated. It's, it's an audio narrative, which I feel like, especially in, in the podcast space is something you don't get. Like you don't get that with Ed and I's show. We're just two nerds talking about karaoke. We're not writing a script and producing. So tell me the difference. What's your process like when you're putting together an episode? What do you do? What's the process? What are the steps? Because like Ed and I book a guest, we geek out about karaoke for a little bit after this and then boom, episode in the can. Yours is much more complicated. I'm a hundred percent sure. Tell us about it. Well, the first thing that I did was decide what story I wanted to tell over the course of a season. And I also, as a part of that, decided how many episodes I wanted to do. I settled on 10 and thought, okay, these are the major story beats that I want to hit. These are the beats of the romance story I want to hit. These are the beats of the mystery sci-fi plot that I want to hit. And then use that to figure out where in the season each of those would happen. After I had that all sketched out, then I was able to do it on an episode by episode basis because I had an idea of what I needed to accomplish in each episode. In terms of timing and all that kind of thing, I established a three-week cadence between episodes. I had asked the actors, and fortunately, they said, no, we, we, we can't do that because of our schedules. I originally thought maybe every two weeks, and I'm glad that they weren't able to do it because I would have discovered that I couldn't do it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do have a day job, so I give myself between two and three weeks to write a script, and that overlaps a little bit with editing each episode. I write the episodes as I go. I don't have three episodes ready when the actors are recording the first of those three. The only exception, of course, was in the beginning when I mentioned that I had two scripts written, but that was really so that I could give material to the folks that were auditioning and say, this is what this story is about. But other than that, I really did do it as I went. That works for me. There's another person who is working on a Fallout podcast called 13, which is a story based on Fallout 1. And she is writing all of her scripts and she's not going to do any work in terms of casting or production or anything until she gets all of her scripts written. And that's her process and that's what works for her. So it's, it's kind of like karaoke, right? Figure out what song is right for you. Find out what process is right for you too. One thing Lawrence pointed out when, when we were early on in this whole thing was he's like, you're very process oriented, which, which is, it's accurate. It, it helps me manage all this stuff because there's a lot to it. You have to write the script. You have to get actors for each of these roles. All of us who do this in, in this space, we all have day jobs. So we have to worry about that part of it, you know, the stuff that pays us rather than what we pay, what can and has been a relatively large amount of money. <laughs> and there's music too. That's another thing that it's important to do. And I, I won't say I regret this because I don't know how much of an additional strain it would have put on me, but music is very important to me in general. And I think in terms of the things that I enjoy, you can often point to the music as something that really augments my enjoyment of something. It's, it's, it's so good in Star Trek, for example, you know, everybody knows James Horner's Star Trek theme or John Williams's music from Star Wars, Murray Gold's stuff from Doctor Who, all of that stuff really, really enhances the experience. So I wanted to duplicate that to some level, but I only use music for the opening theme 
and scene transitions and then music at the close of the episode. I didn't do any late motifs. I didn't do any real incidental music, except for there's one part in episode six where I really think it worked out really well. One thing is I'm very hard on myself, which I don't think is uncommon among people that do this kind of thing. I'm extremely hard on myself, but that's one thing. I go back and listen to that even now because I'm so happy with how it turned out. And a huge part of that is the performances of the actors. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful scene and music is a big part of what made it beautiful. All those things go into it and it, it becomes part of you as you go through that process. There's a lot of me in this script. There are situations that are based on real life experiences that I've had. There are people that are based on people that I know. The lead character, Elizabeth Kirby, is named after someone. She's not like that person, but I named the character in honor of her. So all those, all those, you know, kinds of little things that pop up. There's a lot to it. And it's it's only as complicated as you make it. It would be entirely doable to not go through all of the the process and the hassle that I go through and still make a fantastic audio drama. But it's the process that works for me. And I know Lawrence works extremely hard on the modus files. Kenny, who does Chad, the most popular, the original fallout story podcast, that's extremely popular and rightly so he works his tail off on it. We've all found our own processes that work for us and the things that are important for us to include in these stories. And we, we, we put ourselves into it in that way. I really connected with the bit you said about the music and how that is so important to you in that, because music is really what got me into fallout myself. So I'm curious about the music in playing the game for you. Which songs are the ones you can't help but sing along with while you're playing since a lot of those fall into the kind of music you love? I really loved the take that Bethesda took for the re-recordings of Ring of Fire and Country Roads. I love those. Th those are the ones from Fallout 76 that I come back to and listen to the most often. I'll sing along with in the shower and, and those kinds of things. There's a lot of fun songs like, you know, 60 Minute Man that you brought up. That's an awesome song. My cousin, George, who well, he still has a Victrola. And with that, he had these really old novelty records, like from the thirties. So I was kind of familiar with, with novelty records like that. And to hear one in the game, I was like, yeah, okay, I get this, but I, I like the fun ones. Civilization by Danny Kaye is a great one. Even though the, the music largely is from a particular era and tends to have a particular range of styles, I think they've done a really good job of, of, of keeping those playlists fresh. It's one of my favorite parts about playing the Fallout series, honestly. Who couldn't fall in love with like Fallout 3? And it's always, even even in the introduction, was it, I think it was Fallout 4 where they really, is it I Fall to Pieces mm -hmm. by Jim Reeves? It's the very intro to Fallout 4 when they were like given that trailer. That's the song they use in the background. It, it's just, it's amazing how much it resonates and it's uh, the undertone of everything you do. Like it's almost disturbing to walk around the wasteland without something playing from your pit boy brad i'm loving this by the way you're gonna be very excited to go back i like want to load up my xbox and play fallout right now that's all i want to do right now in my life like i'm gonna explore fallout 76 i have fallout 4 re-downloaded because i knew we were going to talk to you i could geek about a fallout but there's a very important question that i want to ask before we move on with the interview a little bit so this is pride month why was it important to you to tell a queer story in this setting well, one of the things about the way I grew up is that queer relationships were just a thing that existed. There was obviously homophobia around. There's no human being that exists in this world without homophobia being around them. But my family was never like that. And 
same-sex relationships and people that were on the LGBTQ spectrum, whichever letter the person corresponded to, that was looked at as, and I hate to use this word, but I think it's the only word that really makes sense. It was normal. It wasn't anything to be looked at as anything different from my parents' relationship, for example. If two people are in love, two people are in love. They're consenting adults that they fell in love with each other, and that's a beautiful thing. So I think that informed why this story was one that I felt comfortable telling. I will say I didn't set out to tell a queer love story. It happened that way because the OC that I originally based the story on is a female OC. Odessa Valdez is a female character. It sprung up from the inability of player characters to romance Odessa Valdez. So therefore, if I was going to tell the story, it was going to be a love story between two women. And I'm not telling this story any differently than I would if the lead character was a man or if the character of Odessa was a man or if it was two male characters. Like it's, it's almost cliche to say love is love, but love is love and romance is romance. I'm always aghast when people don't look at it that way. It's, it's one of those things that I don't understand. I guess on one hand, I wish I understood it and I understand where some of it comes from, but on the other hand, I don't want to understand it because it's gross and I don't like it and I don't want to think about it. Now, one thing I will say is when this became a queer love story, I understood the responsibility that I had to not fall into stereotypes and to not repeat harmful tropes. I was mindful of that in a way that I probably wouldn't be if it was a cishet relationship. But when you tell this story, you have a level of responsibility, not only to the people that are listening to it and to the people that are represented in this story, but you have a, a responsibility. And I don't mean to overstate this like, oh, well, I have 10 million people listening to this. You have a responsibility to society to present this in, in an honest and an earnest way. And I think that as long as you do that, as long as you go into it with that kind of an attitude that you want to tell this story honestly, and that you understand the stereotypes and tropes that you're trying to avoid, and you are enmeshed within the community in the way that I have been throughout my life, I feel like you're going to do okay. And if you don't, if you mess up and knock on wood, nobody's messaged me and said, dude, what are you doing with anything that I've done in the show? I think that it's turned out okay. Even though I didn't set out to tell a queer love story, the fact that it turned into one made it more important to me. I just got to say, as somebody who has listened from beginning to end, I just, I just fucking loved it. I'm a fan, Brad. I'm a fan. I'm kind of <laughs> geeking out here. I love hearing that. And, and it's one of the things that's great about it is to hear feedback from people in the community as well as people outside of the community. I don't want to say it's more important to hear from people in the community, but hearing that feedback from people that are in the community makes me feel more confident that I'm doing things right. And that I'm honoring that relationship in the way that it needs to be honored, the way that it needs to be presented. There's something I, I can't talk about because it's a massive spoiler for the last episode, but there's one thing that I didn't do that I considered doing that would have been a harmful trope that often happens in mass media with queer characters. And the second I realized, I was like, oh, well, no, I can't do that. You know, so you do have gotcha moments like that where you catch yourself when you almost do something like that. But then also when you have people that aren't in the community, you know, just regular old straights like me <laughs> who listen to the story and are also invested in that love story, even though it's not a love story that they can necessarily identify with, then that's also really gratifying. You know, so both sides of it really make me feel kind of warm and fuzzy inside 
that I'm telling this love story honestly and that, and that people are looking at it as a love story because these things are normal. And I wish I just want to shake people sometimes like this is a love story. That is all it is. It, it's, it, it is a queer love story, but at its core, it's a love story because love between two queer people is no different fundamentally from love between two cishet people. I get frustrated with this stuff because I'm coming at it from the side of the world that I come from. I feel like more people like me should get that and not nearly enough do. It, it is one of the largest sources of frustration in my life, I think. There's so many walls that I feel like that are built in Western Pennsylvania and certain households. And you just don't understand how we ever evolved that way as society. But here's a couple of things I do know and do appreciate about your approach to this it is as a storyteller myself and somebody who's dabbled in playwriting specifically. I don't want to tell a story unless I think it's worth telling. Like I could write stupid shit. Like it's there. You can write stupid shit. I'm a good writer. I know I could tell dumb stories and recite tropes and do that. But I, I hate it. Like I can't do it. I want to tell a story that I feel is worth telling. And the story that you're telling, I feel, is a story that's worth telling. And your almost reverential approach to it. I, I deeply appreciate the fact that you're taking all these considerations and you're trying to be as respectful as possible within the community. And I, I'm really honestly looking forward to diving into it a, a lot more. Ed, do you have any thoughts to add before we transition to the next thing? Well, we know that Brad likes to play games, so I figure we should just play our game with him. What do you think? I think we should play a game. Brad, do you want to play a game with us? I would like nothing more. So we have this game, it's called Hit Me With Your Best Shot because we're gigantic nerds. Um, and basically what we're going to do is we're going to give you five quick fire, have to hit you with the air quotes, the air quotes, quick fire questions that basically the first thing that pops into your head, you don't need to explain your answer to anybody. You don't owe anybody an explanation. Your answer is your answer. Please stick by your guns. Give us your best shot. You only get five. And since it's only fair, at the end of those five, you're going to have a chance to fire away. That means you can ask any question that you want, karaoke-related or otherwise, to Ed and I, and we solemnly swear that we will answer honestly. So without further ado, Brad, are you ready to play? I am so ready. Question number one, then. What is the absolute best thing you have seen at karaoke? Boy, that's tough. There's been a lot. Uh, so I think one of the things that I saw that was wonderful was a group of us went out after a rehearsal or a performance for one of the musicals that we were in. And I saw a line of absolute ringers go in and kill every song that they did. And I was just proud to be there, man. I didn't even want to get up and get the mic. And what was great about it was sometimes you get a little bit of, I don't want to say pushback, but resentment maybe from, from people that are, that are regular karaoke singers at a particular venue when these people come in and they sort of take over and they're clearly professionally trained and da, da, da. that didn't happen. It was, it was that atmosphere that you want. And it was, I, I mean, I'm surprised they didn't get carried around on chairs. It was, <laughs> it was beautiful. Conversely, what's the worst thing you've seen at karaoke? There was a lady who would sing fairly regularly at one of the bars that I went to. And she, I believe she was mentally challenged. And she would sing Rod Stewart in a kind of a screechy voice. And she was held up to ridicule, not active ridicule, but people were clearly laughing at her. And I felt like it was enabled by the DJ in, in the way that it was approached. And 
that was something that I was deeply uncomfortable with. And I still regret not speaking up more strongly than I did at the time. But karaoke often has people who aren't the best singers in the world and people are up there having fun. She was having fun and she was being made fun of. And I, I, I didn't like that. And it's something that I still think about. Sorry to be a downer, but that was not good. No, that's, we, we asked the question. That's, that's on us. And that sounds, that sounds gross. That's definitely not the atmosphere that we're trying to promote. But question number three. What is the one song that you would love to do at karaoke that you've never been able to find? Ooh, there's a song and I, I haven't looked for it in a while. There's a musical called The Last Five Years. And there's a song from that called If I Didn't Believe in You, which is a great song. I mean, I sing it all the time. I think it's a great song. I found a karaoke version of it on YouTube, but not an official karaoke version from the place where I get all my tracks from. So that's the only place where I've ever seen it. And I haven't looked in books recently, but I'm assuming it doesn't exist in there. Brad, let me tell you, get out to a karaoke spot if they have YouTube, it exists on YouTube because I have sung that song. I sing that song oh, literally all the time. Really? It's one of, I haven't sung it at karaoke yet, but it is one of my favorite things to sing when I'm in the house. So there is an instrumental that exists for that song. And it sounds like you probably know it well enough, but I think there's a karaoke version, but I know there's an instrumental that exists for that one. Just something to keep in mind. Just ask your karaoke DJ the next time you're out if they have access to YouTube that they can play and put it on the screen and you can find that song. And I can always do it myself. I can pull it down and put it on a memory stick. The, the DJ that, that works at the club that my friend Mark goes to, and we, we occasionally go out there now, he has the ability to take stuff that's on a memory stick and pop it in and, and play it. So that's, that would not be particularly difficult, but that's, that's one that I've never done for karaoke and I know I can sing it. So it would be, it would be fun. Question four. Imagine that someone kidnapped everyone that you care about. And the only way to release them was to wow the kidnappers with a karaoke performance. What song do you choose to save your loved ones? There are two that I can think of off the top of my head. I will go with, you'll never walk alone from carousel. Because part of it is it starts off very firmly in my range. So it's, it's, it's a good one to start off with. And then it has that little punch that I think would move the kidnappers in a way that, that they would feel more comfortable with releasing my loved ones. The other one is I am what I am from, from La Caja Fall. That one is also kind of a, I mean, it's like a, practically a beer hall song in terms of momentum. Um, but I think that. You'll never walk alone. I might even make them tear up with, with you'll never walk alone. They'll, they'll, they'll feel bad. And they'll, after they release my loved ones, they'll, you know, maybe call their loved ones and, and apologize <laughs> for, for whatever it is that they, that they did that, that led them down this path. That's all we can really ask for. If you could magically strike one song from every karaoke playlist forever, which song would you choose? You know, there aren't many that I don't like. There are some that people maybe shouldn't do. I mean, we could always go with photograph. Are you talking about picture? Or picture, yeah, not photograph. Yeah, the, yeah it's the knockoff version. It's the wish.com version of, of, of picture. <laughs> I think it would probably be better than picture, honest. Nickelback gets a lot of hate, but Nickelback isn't Kid Rock, so. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. So where, are you going with picture, Brad? I apparently struck it from my memory because I was unable to call it by its actual name. I feel like that's a, a plot point in Once Upon a Wasteland. So, I mean, <laughs> nice callback. 
<laughs> unintentional callbacks at the best. There, there is an unintentional callback in episode 10 to episode seven that I didn't even realize that I put in there until I was editing it. Completely unintentional callback. I'm going to intently listen for it as I'm making my way through. So that's kind of it, Brad. You did great. We hit you with our best shot. You made me nerd out about Jason Robert Brown. Like, I don't know what more you can ask for in a round of hit me with your best shot. But now you have the opportunity to fire away. So go ahead and ask Ed and I anything that pops in your head. And we solemnly swear we will answer honestly. So what song that you can't sing would you like to be able to sing? That is such a good question, Brad. There's so many. I know what my answer is. I don't have an upper range, so it's going to be something high. You know what I think mine would be? I think it would be Killer Queen by Queen. I think I'd love to be able to do that. That's a fun song. It is. And whenever I hear it now, I'm like, if this, if this didn't come out when it did, and you aired it now, it would still be a hit. I have a really, really strong baritone bass range, but the problem is with musical theater is that they don't write roles for baritone bass anymore. When I'm living in my head here, it's all in the golden era of musicals. Like you put me in like the era where Camelot and My Fair Lady and like anything that Robert Golay could have been in, basically that that is my my shit right there. Um, so but there are so many roles that like keep coming out. I am gonna use a musical. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's gonna be Heaven on Their Minds from Jesus Christ Superstar. I can't can't do it. Like, I can't, I want to so bad. There are parts that I'm very comfortable on. I will sing along at home. My fiance will will tolerate me, and that's why I love her so much. Me trying to sing the song, but man, oh man, I, I cannot hit some of the notes that are involved in that. And good Lord, I think it'd be a great karaoke tune too. Ed, Brad, do you back me up with yes or no? Have it on their minds as a karaoke tune. Uh, well, yeah, and that's one of the nice things about Superstar. Superstar, I think, lends itself to karaoke because it, it's, even though it's a show tune and has that performative aspect, it's close enough to a popular type of song that it would, it would work in that venue, but it has the built-in performative aspect to the point where it's the kind of thing that should be a hit at karaoke when anybody does it. Especially if you could sing it, if you can sing it, that's a tear that helps down at karaoke type song. It is a plus to be able to pull it off. There was a nine inch nail song I did one time on a, on a whim and I should not have done it. I don't even remember what song it was, but it was terrible, terrible. And I, and to, to, I guess this speaks to the community aspect of it. One of the regulars at that bar, when I went back and sat down, he said, he said, you know, maybe that song's not, not so great for your voice. Like the nicest way possible (laughs) to say, don't ever sing that song again. But he he, he like, didn't want to make me feel bad, but he was like, maybe consider doing something else. That's. That's great. And that is the nicest way I think somebody can do that. And I wish people would do that to Ed and I. People should just tell us when we should sing certain things more, because I feel like that would be helpful for both of us. One of the things that I appreciate about Vitriol, she is very good about telling me things in a, in a direct but kind way that need to be said. That's one of the best things about interacting with her is that she has that ability, which is not, a, it's, it's not an easy thing to, to do, but she pulls it off with aplomb. So what we will try to pull off with the plum in honor of Vitriol's natural ability to do this is ending this interview with you. What we like to do at this point in the show is it's no longer Ed and I's show. The greatest song ever sung poorly is now your show. Plug anything you want, put any kind of message out you want, social media, podcast, 
whatever you want to talk about, the floor is yours. We have discussed my audio drama podcast, Once Upon a Wasteland. You can find it on any popular podcast platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and probably a, a number of unpopular podcast platforms as well. You can find it absolutely anywhere. And if there's someplace that you can't find it, please tell me and I will make sure that it is able to be found there. If you want to follow us on social media, you can go to Twitter and follow us at onceupon76pod. That's the show's Twitter account. I have access to that. I do most of the posting because I'm a blabbermouth. Vitriol also has access to that. So be careful what you send in DMs. We just completed our 10 episode season. So it's a great time to binge. It's a fun story. There's, there's uh, laughter and tears. There's ups and downs. There is fantastic voice acting from a truly talented and, and dedicated cast and, and the success that we've achieved is really down to them. I couldn't be happier with having that group helping bring this story to life. And, and as we've discussed, it's a story that, that deserves to be told and, and should be told and having them to be the ones that tell it is something that, that truly honors me. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I don't post nearly as much on my personal account as I do on the show's account, but my ID there is reticent duet. There's links to my IMDB page there, my demo reel, all those kinds of things. If you want to see our performance in Austria at the Salzburg Cathedral performing the uh, Mozart's Misa Brevis in C major, KV 259, the, uh, the organ solo mass, it's on YouTube. If you want to see it, shoot me a DM. I've tweeted it a couple of times, but it's a great performance with some truly fabulous musicians. We performed with the Salzburg Cathedral Choir and to do a Mozart mass in the cathedral in Salzburg where Mozart himself performed it is an experience that I'm darn glad I'm, I'm able to say that I did it. And I, if you listen to the recording, I must've been quiet that day because it sounds really, really good. This entire interview also sounded really good. And we will link to all of that stuff in our show notes, Brad E. Williams. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we both sincerely hope to see you singing at a screen sometime soon. And now we have Brad Williams singing You'll Never Walk Alone from the musical Carousel. When you walk through a storm Hold your head up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of the storm There's a golden sky And the sweet silver song of the lark Walk on through the wind Walk on through the rain Though your dreams be tossed and
I'm all business. We're only talking business shit tonight. And what's in the business of doing business is this. My face is on a t-shirt. Go buy it. Sungpoorly.com. You can see me doing my famous air quotes. It's famous now in my own head, at least, because I'm an egotistical maniac at this point, because my face is on a fucking t-shirt. I do want to say something. I can see it in your face. What do you got? Oh, I already bought mine and I'm going to wear it to your bachelor party. You know what the best part is? I'm going to wear my t-shirt to my bachelor party. It's a karaoke at my bachelor party. I'm wearing my own face on a t-shirt. And if that isn't the most egotistical, greatest song ever sung poorly shit of all time, I don't know what is. That's all I got to say tonight. Go go to the website, buy my t-shirt. Booyah. That website, sungpoorly.com. Also, while we're being egotistical, thanks to Podchaser for naming us one of the 50 podcasts to discover in June. And thank you to Ben Dumb for giving us all the music that we use for our show. You can check him out on Spotify or Apple Music at the Ben Dumb 3. Hey, make sure you come back next time because we're going to talk to someone who can tell you how karaoke can make you a better public speaker. Do I need that ad? Do I need karaoke to tell me how to be a better public speaker? I don't know if you need it, but it probably is why you are so good at it. I, it probably is, actually. Yeah, come, come back and listen to this guy. This is going to be great. That's it. That's all. There is no more. So until next time, I'm Adam Wainwright. And I'm Ed Kennard. And remember that singing off key is still technically singing. With music in the Fallout games, I can only think of one group, and that's the Ink Spots. Yes. 
That's not coming through the computer. God damn it. So you, you could you couldn't you, you could hear it before, but you can't hear it now. No, it's all distorted. Do you want to do like, oh yeah, I heard it, and then you can insert it later? I really want you to hear this one if we can. <laughs> okay. This, is, this one's so fucking obnoxious.